16 through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3:36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Read New City Catechism question 28 with me. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? At the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. Amen. You may be seated. morning, uh, I think the title of the sermon was Hell. It's a tough subject to cover. We've had some tough subjects. The Bible covers hard subjects to talk about. In our text, we'll see that the scripture used the love of God, for God so loved the world. And you'll see that con you know, how that works with the love of God. Theologians have had problems with it in the past and have decided that the love of God and hell don't coexist, so they've written hell out of the picture. That's been happening for hundreds of years by some really good scholarly theologians. So if you don't want to believe in hell, you can definitely read some people that will say you don't have to. Recently, there was a pastor, Rob Bell, who did the same thing. He wrote a book, Love Wins. And in 2011, it was on the front of Time magazine. He got on it, and he basically said there wasn't any hell and sold a lot of books, got to be on Oprah and all those kinds of things, became famous, or more famous than he already was. So there are conflicting views. We'll try to look at the scripture today and see that the love of God and the wrath of God, as we read in these scriptures today, can and do exist harmoniously together. Sounds like a hard task, huh? But the scripture says this. We're going to specifically look at Jesus and some of the things he said about hell. We know from Hebrews 1 verse 3 it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
So, if God is love and Jesus is the exact imprint of that love and Jesus speaks more of hell than he does of heaven, he speaks more of hell than he does than any other person in the Bible, we're going to have to balance this out and see how this harmonizes the love of God and hell. In Luke 16, in our catechism question, it listed this text. And this text is Jesus' teaching. Some people say in a parable. Some people say not, in the sense that most of Jesus' parables didn't have a person's name in it. He would just say there's a certain man, but here he says there was a rich man and Lazarus. He mentions an actual name. But to be honest, Jesus spoke many things in parables, and it doesn't make them less true. And some people say that hell is all that it describes is nothing more than metaphors. But does that really take away from the horribleness of hell? You see, parables and metaphors are spoken to give an example of what reality really is. And if that metaphor is really horrible, what must reality really be? Saying it's a metaphor or parable does not take away from the gravity of Jesus' words and what he spoke and the whole Bible speaks about when concerning hell. So coming to Luke 16, we see this great chasm that none may cross from here to there. We see that it's a place of torment, of eternal torment. Jesus is speaking this story. Jesus talks about hell vividly. There's no denying that Jesus doesn't only reference hell, he describes it in great detail. Again, in another place besides that portion in Luke 16 is Mark 9, 43. Speaks of hell as an unquenchable fire. Mark 9, 48, he speaks of it being a place where the worm does not die. He speaks about hell being where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. Matthew 13, 42 and from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. That's what the rich man wants to do in Luke 16, 19 through 31. He says hell, Jesus does, is a place of outer darkness. In Matthew 25, 30, he compares it to Gehenna in Matthew 10, 28. Gehenna was the word Jesus used for hell often. Gehenna was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and maggots abounded. Jesus talks about hell. He vividly describes it. There's no denying that. Jesus knew, believed, and warned 
about the absolute reality of hell. It's real. Real horrible place. Jesus in Matthew 13, 36 through 43 was explaining the parable of the weeds. He left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And Jesus answered and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. You guys know who the son of man is? Jesus is the word he referred to himself out of Daniel, uh, the prophecy that the son of man would come. He He referred to himself as the fulfillment of that prophecy of Daniel. He was the son of man. Verse 38, he says, The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Remember in the story in Luke 16 where Jesus says Lazarus was carried away by the angel? Man, I want to be carried away in my death by the angels, into the presence of of Jesus. You see this contrast of love and wrath. You see this contrast of justification by believing in Jesus and the contrast and the results of not believing in him. You see it in this explanation of Jesus' parable. It's the example of a real reality. The Son of Man will send his angels. He says, uh, the harvest is ending the age and the reapers are angels. Just, verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man, this is Jesus again, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them You'd hear that. This is the Son of Man. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Breaking that down a little bit. Looking at and throw them. Balosin in Greek to throw, to cast. It's not just people choosing to go there. It is the Son of Man, harsh to take, harsh to hear, but thrown there, cast there. Into what? Pyre in the Greek, where we get pyro, pyros, pyromania, all those things, into fire, a furnace. Jesus said this was real. He explained this parable of the weeds about a place called Gehenna, a disgusting place of filth, a dumping ground of the city. Jesus used this to illuminate his point about the evil awaiting those not in alignment with God the Father. 
garbage, the filth of the city. Easton's Bible Dictionary illustrates here the dead bodies of animals and of criminals and all kinds of filth were cast and consumed by the fire, kept always burning. Thus, in the process of time, became the image of the place of everlasting destruction. Jesus warned in Matthew 5 that if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown, cast into hell. Not just a people just choose to go there. Thrown, cast. If your right eye causes you to stumble out, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna, to hell. Matthew 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't fear them. Fear what people can do to your body. Jesus said, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 18, again, if you're verse 9, eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew 23, 15, he warns the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, calls them hypocrites. He says they travel over land and sea to win a single convert. When they've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Matthew 23, 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Condemned, our text used that word too, along with the love of God, that God so loved. He didn't desire for us to be condemned to hell. He sent his son that we might not be condemned, but unbelief produces condemnation. And Jesus is warning about this condemnation of hell. He teaches about it more than any other person in the Bible. You see, hell is our default mode. What do I mean by that? It means that everybody is bound for hell. It is the default mode of doing nothing. If someone does not intervene, if God does not intervene, if the Lord himself does not die for us in our place, that is where all are bound. Contrary to popular belief, Hell is not a place where God sends those who have been especially bad. It is just where everyone will go, our default destination. And we need a rescuer or we will all stand condemned without a rescuer. We're left with these options to stay in our state of depravity and be eternally punished or to submit to the Savior and accept the gift of of redemption but that requires humbling ourselves but in our pride we want self-autonomy self-rule we want to make our own decisions and we will make them about every area of our life for god so loved the world we read it we sang it this morning i love seeing in scripture for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that who ever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life you see eternal life contrasted with perishing 
And then verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is what God did in his love to sin. But verse 18, Jesus warns, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's the natural state that people are in, condemned already. Hell already awaits them. Condemnation already awaits them. It awaits everyone outside of a redeemer. About outside of a rescuer. They're condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, it's a serious thing to reject the only Son of God. It's serious. It's a big thing. It's not something just to be mocked. It's not something just to say, well, I want to go there anyway and just party with my friends and laugh about it. It's not. Jesus does not leave it in that kind of context. And in his conclusion in John 3, 36, in our text, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That looks good. That looks glorious. We're going to talk about that some more in future sermons, but today... It's more about whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. You see an opposite there. Believe in the Son. Have eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And then Jesus emphasizes and goes on to say, here's the natural state of man. But the wrath of God remains on him. Remains, abides, continues to stay. That means it is and continues and is not removed. It's only removed by believing in the rescuer, the redeemer, the only son of God. Otherwise, the wrath of God abides. It it remains on him, Jesus says. That's serious. He's talking about the love of God and the wrath of God in one breath. And he says they go together. And theologians, liberal ones especially, say they can't go together. I'm going to cut all this out and just put this. That's what Rob Bell directly does in his book, Love Wins. Takes all the good things and says none of this glorifies God. Just take it out. Take hell out. Take all this out. Take the wrath of God out. Take all these things out. But Jesus doesn't do that. Says them in the same same sentence. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 1.18 that says that all people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's why the wrath of God abides on them, because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And outside of regenerating grace, that's where we all are we are all people who have the wrath of god abiding on us because we are suppressing the truth and our unrighteousness we want to go our own way isaiah 53 all we like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to our own way we want our own way self way self salvation self rule we talked about last week Self-law, make up our own law. Self-rule, rule over ourselves. Our autonomy, I rule over what I want, I decide right and wrong. Isaiah says, all of us has turned 
to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus. Ephesians warns all, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now that is working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We're all in the same boat, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us, children of wrath, the wrath of God remaining upon them, abiding upon them. It is only removed in the Redeemer. It is only removed in the one and only way, in the one and only truth, in the one and only life, Jesus. Our default mode just to do nothing, hell awaits all. We are all dead in our sins and trespasses and condemned to hell as children of wrath. We need a rescuer or we stand condemned. Wrath of God. His settled anger toward sin that is expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on the guilty sinner. Hell, suitable vengeance for me rejecting Jesus? Yes. Suitable vengeance. His wrath is settled anger. It is not reckless rage. It's not uncontrollable anger. It's not a senseless fury. It's not unjust vengeance. It is just wrath of God in a precise and controlled response to the belittling of who he is, the belittling of his holiness. That's why it's really bad. It matches. Doctrines go together. They fit together. And when you remove one, just like Rob Bell did, remove hell, what do you do? Well, you remove that some are going there, so he became a universalist. All are eventually going. You remove that, then he accepted every other doctrine just came tumbling down in the Bible. Every hard thing that Jesus said became removed because doctrines are like an ecosystem. And when you remove one thing, it makes everything else out of balance. You remove hell, all kinds of doctrines will easily tumble down in our uh, catechism, New City Catechism, J.C. Ryle, in his commentary this week, said that. He said, painfully as the subject of hell is, it is one about which I dare not and cannot and must not be silent. They say hell is too awful of an idea to be really true. The devil, of course, rejoices in the views of such people. They help his kingdom mightily. They are preaching up one of his old favorite doctrines, Ye shall not surely die. It is as true as heaven, that is hell. It is as true as justification by faith, another doctrine we believe. It is as true as the fact that Christ died upon the cross, as true as the Dead Sea. There's not a fact or doctrine which you may not lawfully doubt if you doubt hell. You hear that? 
doubt hell, and you might as well start doubting all these other truths that are in the Word. Many people say this in a panel discussion with Kevin DeYoung, and he was asking questions to Tim Keller and D.A. Carson about the time that this Rob Bell book was really big, about that there's no hell on the front of Time magazine, Christians promoting that. Kevin DeYoung asked Tim Keller, is this doctrine we're fighting for? Should we be talking about it? Should we be fighting about it? Tim Keller says, yes. He brings up this idea of the same thing as J.C. Ryle, that if you disbelieve hell, you can disbelieve all other kinds of doctrines and truths in the Bible. Judgment and an eternal punishment is an important doctrine that connects other doctrines in a vital way. And he gives two ways. First, he says that when you lessen the penalty for a wrong... You make the wrong less serious, and you make the person wronged less serious. Now, I know that's hard to grasp, all of that, but this is what you do. Here's an example of that. If you take a wrong done against somebody, let's take murder, and you apply a penalty to that murder as, say we make it something really like a year in prison, what do you do? You're saying something about that murder. You're saying something about the seriousness of that murder, that sin. You're saying, how serious is it? About worth about a year. Then you're saying to the person who was murdered, here's how big the sin was against you, worth about a year. You're measuring by your judgment on the seriousness of the sin and to whom the sin was committed against. This is where hell And this doctrine, Timothy Keller is trying to explain, is very important. The greater the penalty, the more serious the sin against the person wrong. If there's just purgatory that you go to, there's hell for a little while, you work your way out. Or just the other doctrine of annihilationism that you just go and poof, you're burned up, that's it. You don't exist anymore. You make the seriousness of sin say something. Here's the seriousness of your rebellion against God. And you say your sin against God is only this bad. It's only that bad. Not really that bad. Your sin's not really that bad. It's it's the judgment of it is this bad. But when you put that your sin is against an infinite God, an infinite being, and your sin is infinitely horrible and deserving of infinitely eternal punishment in hell. You're saying your sin is really bad, and the person that you're sinning against is all glorious. He's almighty. This is what J.C. Ryle was saying. You're belittling his holiness if you make hell anything less than that. This is what the doctrine of hell and what Jesus warned against so strongly because he was from heaven. He was sent from heaven above in John 3. He's telling Nicodemus, you don't understand, but I understand because I'm sent from above and you must be born from above. You must be sent from the spirit from above. You must be born again. You see, this place is serious. Heaven is real, and I'm the one and the only one from heaven that can explain it to you in truth. You have to hear me. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must find the Redeemer. The other point that Keller brings out, the second 
reason for biblical eternal hell is what happened at the cross. You see, what did Jesus really pay for there? What did he really die in your place for? Not that much. I mean, you know, it was, yeah, I did some bad things. Told some lies and things, you know. Yeah, Jesus died. Well, the Bible doesn't give a picture of the cross like that. He gives a picture of the cross of brutal beating of Jesus. Of him dying and rejected and despised and forsaken to the point that he cries out. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A cry. The Bible describes in Mark 15 that utter darkness fell over the earth at noontime to three. Utter darkness just came. No eclipse, no thing you could explain. Utter darkness fell, and it fell on Jesus upon the cross. Well, it's not that bad. My sin's not that bad. The Bible says it is. The Bible says that the cross was that bad. Because he was experiencing that much bad in your place. And when you remove hell and you remove how bad it is, you say, well, yeah, Jesus, you know, he died for me. Yeah, wasn't that bad. The Bible doesn't say it wasn't that bad. It says it's badder than we can imagine it was. I, don't, I can't imagine sweating drops of blood oozing out of my pores in the garden saying not let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. It's hard to imagine, but it's worse than the metaphors. It's worse than the parables. It's worse than our imagination. Wow, that's really bad, Bobby. Yeah, that is, because we're in denial about our sin, and we're in denial and, and, and can't see the glory and holiness of God for what it really is. But Jesus warns strongly about what the glory of God is. He warns strongly about the torment that is in hell for those who do not believe. So the second reason for biblical eternal hell is to answer, what did Jesus really bear on the cross? If Jesus took a big amount, then his love is a big amount. If Jesus took a little amount, his love is a little amount. These doctrines of God's love and Jesus' love and what he bore for us go together. They fit together. I don't need a theologian or a former pastor to write to me about how there is no hell because that takes away from the fact of what Jesus bore for me at the cross. His love that was intense for me to do all that for me. Jesus is the most loving man that ever lived. And he spoke about hell more frequently and vividly than all other biblical authors combined. Secondly, this existence of hell helps us to understand the consequences of sin. But most importantly, until we acknowledge the reality of hell, we cannot truly understand the meaning of the cross. Put another way, we cannot understand God's love until we understand the reality of his wrath. God's wrath is that settled, controlled opposition and hatred of anything that is destroying what he loves. God's wrath flows from his love for his creation. It flows from his sense of justice, and his just justice is his wrath, his just and righteous, perfect wrath. 
He is angry at greed and self-centeredness and injustice and evil because they are destructive. And God will not tolerate anything or anyone responsible for destroying his creation and the people that he loves. John Lynn in our commentary this week said that. Pretty good, isn't it? Just read the commentaries and what they have to say about the love of God. He goes on to say, I know God loves me because he would give up everything for me is much different from saying, I know God loves me because he did give up everything for me. One is a loving sentiment, the other is a loving act. And while we may try to make God more loving by diminishing the reality of hell and God's wrath, all we've really done is diminish the love of God. Without a real hell, we cannot understand the real price that Jesus paid for our sin. And without a real price that was paid, there is no real love, no real grace, and there's no real praise for what he has done. Read that over and over again because it took about the fourth or fifth time before it hit home with me hard. Unless you believe in hell, you'll never know how much Jesus loves you and values you. Jesus experienced hell on the cross for you. Jesus was separated from his father on the cross. He did cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus lost the eternal love of the Father, he experienced an agony, a disintegration, an isolation greater than anything of us would experience in eternity in hell. He took the isolation, the disintegration that we deserved upon himself. And unless you believe in hell and see what Jesus took for you, you will never know how much he loves you. The love of God and hell go together. Their doctrines built upon one another, and they are not to be separated. The remedy of our fear of death and hell is not to hide ourselves from hell, not to minimize hell to us or to our children, but to reveal Christ and his cross. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath. He's not destined us for wrath and hell, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Can you say amen? amen. He's destined you for salvation. He doesn't want you to be condemned. He wants you to believe. And he's crying out and wooing all those who have ears to hear. Let them hear. Amen? We're going to take communion together. Sing a song of praise as we close and worship together. You're welcome to partake of us, with us, this Lord's Supper. If you have believed in Jesus, if you've put your trust in him, you have eternal life in him, join us in this meal that we partake together. Paul instructs to the Corinthians, he says, in the night 
that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and he gave thanks to the Father and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And when you do, do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. In like manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. Take this and drink it and do this in remembrance of me and remember my death until I come. Let us partake together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love in sending your Son not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved. We thank you, Lord, for your great salvation and our great rescuer and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord who gave his body, which was broken for us, and his blood that was shed for us. The only way out of the fiery furnaces of hell and the only way into the glorious redemption of heaven to be with our Savior forever and ever. We praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.